and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I am the dog. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark Schmore. He is the duck. And it is quiet on the college football front, but things are popping with the NBA Finals. So thank you for joining us. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? I'm I'm doing wonderful today, Warren. It's uh, always tough when a week goes by and I don't get to do this with you. So happy to be back. Yep, we took a week off last week due to some family and, and work uh, interferences, but it's good to be back. And we left off two weeks ago really on the doorstep of the NBA Finals with the, the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics. Tonight, here we are, we're picking up. Uh, game five just finished up last night. We're looking ahead to game six. But before we get into that, as we always like to do, we try to cover any dog and duck news and notes uh, before getting into other sports that are on our minds. And so, so Mark, uh, you know, it's quiet right now. The, the, the Huskies, like I'm sure the, um, the Ducks, they are hosting some recruits on the weekends. That's kind of a, an ongoing story, but no new commitments. Probably the, the biggest news as far as duck, or excuse me, as far as dog news goes is um, that, uh, that 247 reported that um, three Husky players are no longer on the roster after the graduation services on Saturday. Those being defensive lineman Draco Bynum, uh, edge rusher Jordan Lolohea, and stud freshman running back Emika Megwa, who are no longer listed on the uh, Washington Huskies roster. Not really a big surprise or a big loss at, at this point, I think, for the Huskies. Draco Bynum's a guy that uh, hails from your home state, Mark, and was recruited uh, out of uh, Oregon and um, came in with a lot of high expectations, a, a four-star guy, but has just not really seen the field, kind of a tweener and just couldn't seem to figure out the right body size and position to get on the field. Jordan Lolahea, I, I may be the only guy that feels this way, but it 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 feels like we've talked about Jordan Lolahea for like at least seven years because we started recruiting him as a, a sophomore or junior. We got a commitment from him. He went on his Mormon mission then finally comes back and now here we are all these years later and we really didn't get to see anything from him at all so uh definitely a, a journey of no real results and then amika megwa is probably the one that's most disappointing this is a guy that was the jewel of our 2021 class uh four star running back out of texas a physical freak, a specimen, um, a power back, a guy that was supposedly the perfect fit for the John Donovan system. But as we've seen with um, Kalen DeBoer, what John Donovan was looking for and what Kalen DeBoer is looking for were two very different things. 
And I think between some injury concerns and perhaps some questions about where he fits on this team, Megua has decided to transfer out. So, um, Mark, I don't know if you're getting any any news on any of this or, you know, duck players that are going, but to me, this seems to be just business as usual for college football in 2022. Yeah, I think you usually have kind of a sorting period after after the spring game where guys kind of they have a little more clarity about where they stand in the pecking order, where they stand in relation to the depth chart. And it's, you know, if a guy is kind of sizing up his chances to play and is realizing that, Hey, I may be kind of the odd man out here. uh, It makes sense that now is the time that they would explore some other options before the fall camp really gets going later in the summer. Yeah. And I'm not completely sure I understand. I thought that the, the transfer portal had closed but I don't really know. Maybe there's some other pathway for them or, or maybe they're just going to wait a year and get onto a, a roster next year. Yeah. I mean, it could be that they're, they've sized it up and are, are willing to uh, wait. I, I've kind of lost track with all of the rule changes as it regards to transfers of when a guy can transfer, because you still see it happen like on the eve of the first game of the season, some, you know, backup quarterback will announce that he's transferring. And so it doesn't seem like whatever deadlines are in place have that big of an impact in curbing, you know, kind of last minute transfers and, and certainly the beginning of the summer, um, you know, is, is you have even more time to kind of make that sort of decision. So, uh, but if, if you really feel like you're not going to play, then I think you're willing to, to sit out that year and, and try to take your shot somewhere else. Yeah, no, I agree. <clears throat> Mark, I thought you might enjoy this little tidbit from 247. Um, they do uh, an annual rating of teams that best develop talent. Now, keep in mind, it's got to be after the uh, entire recruiting classes have been processed so that you can see the full extent of their impact. So from the five-year window of 2013 to 2017 signing classes, which for Husky football, that would be the Chris Peterson era. For Oregon, that would be the Mark Helfrich, Willie Taggart. Um, I'm not sure when Cristobal got there, but probably those two are the coaches that would make up the biggest amount of that recruiting class, but those recruiting classes, but here are the top four teams uh, in terms of developing talent, according to two, four, seven, number one, Virginia tech. Does that surprise you? Uh, Yes. Surprises me very much. (laughs) That caught me off guard. I, and I, what I can only assume is the way that this this works out is that based on the star rating of the players they got, the the number of you know all conference players, draft picks, and so on and so forth exceeded the expectations more than any other school. Um, so, hey, congratulations to Virginia Tech. Number two and number three, not so much of a surprise, perhaps. Alabama and Ohio State. And then I think for Husky fans, a source of pride coming in at number four, 
is the Washington Huskies in terms of being the best school at developing talent from the years of 2013 to 2017? And again, I asked that question based on those years, Mark, not the last two years, but based on those years, do you think that that's a fair assessment? Uh, no, I'm totally suspect on this whole study because, <laughs> because for one thing, if you're, if you're Alabama or you're Ohio State, how is it possible that you can overachieve in player development when you're recruiting at the level that those schools are recruiting? I would think the only way for Alabama is to underachieve, like is to have a team right. that isn't producing, you know, blue chip NFL talent, because if all of their five-star players end up becoming all conference players, they're just essentially becoming the players that everybody thought they would become. So I think I'm dubious of that. I'm very dubious of any ranking that says Virginia tech was doing the best at developing talent in an era where, I mean, from 2013 to 2017, they went eight and five, seven and six, seven and six, 10 and four, nine and four. And it's only gotten worse since then. So just based on those three schools alone, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what to do with this study has Washington. I mean, I guess if, if you're talking about the recruiting classes kind of at the beginning of the Chris Peterson era and what they turned into in 16, 17 and 18. Yeah. In that very thin slice, that three year kind of sample size, you would have to say that, that Washington fared really well in terms of how those guys actually performed on the field. Uh, so I, I think I find I have the least skepticism for Washington's place in these rankings, but any, any ranking that, that says Virginia tech is number one, I'm, I'm just, I'm out on. You, you, you just can't accept it. It's, well, it's I just, I'm, be I'm looking at the on-field product yeah. of Virginia. I mean, Virginia tech hasn't had like a relevant football moment. It seems like in a decade. So I, I just can't, I can't get my mind wrapped around that. So I guess then it, it probably do doesn't mean a lot to you then to hear that the, the two worst developers in college football during that era were number one, Baylor, and number two, Oregon. Yeah, well, so let's, let's, let's take my bias out of it and just look at Baylor. I mean, Baylor, under Art Bryles in 2013, 11 and two, 2014, 11 and two, 2015, they were 10 and three. Then they have this massive scandal they, I mean, the whole program is hit. They have all kinds of transfers. They go one and 11 in 2017 under Matt Rule. And two years later, they're in a Sugar Bowl playing for the Big 12 title game under Matt Rule. He leaves, Dave Aranda comes in and he takes him to the Sugar Bowl this, this most recent year. So I would say Baylor has done about as well as any school of consistently developing talent, regardless of who the coach is. They've had three different coaches win 11 or more games there in the last eight seasons. Like, I mean, I would say Baylor has done a much better job than Virginia Tech in terms of regularly like maximizing the talent on their roster. Like setting, setting aside Oregon's place on this and Washington's place on this, I would, I would just right. say, I think, I think whoever wrote down Baylor and Virginia Tech got it wrong. I think Baylor was supposed to be number one and, and Virginia Tech was supposed to be like down near the bottom. Well, I think uh, that there's obviously some different metrics that are of different value to 247 than what we're seeing 
in in this conversation. So, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I think we have felt for a long time with Chris Peterson that that was his strength was developing players, finding guys, and getting the best out of them. We haven't been able to break through to beat the Alabamas, the Ohio States of the world, the Penn States in uh, um, in, in the, the Sugar Bowl. But um, I think, or excuse me, the Fiesta Bowl, but I think um, this rings true for me that this is this is this is a a good reflection of now i can't speak for virginia tech but i i think the reason why we've talked about this before mark but the reason why alabama and ohio state are always in the college football playoffs is because they get the best talent and they have the best coaches when you put those two together it's almost impossible to not, to not, you know, have a successful seasons year in and year out. I think teams like Oregon and Washington, they they slide up and down the scale of having great recruiting classes with coaches that are not great at developing, and you know, okay recruiting classes with coaches that are great at developing, and you know, being able to to match the big boys is a big challenge. So I think. You know, for the for the Huskies, the big takeaway is this: man, what could have been if we had been able to develop more, te- or if we, if we had been able to recruit a higher-rated recruiting class? Because if the development was there, then the results would have produced more college football playoff, sh- you know, showings than just 2016. But and same with Oregon. You know, I mean, they they've they've made it to bowls, they've won bowls they've made it to Pac-12 championships, but they haven't made it to a college football playoffs since, uh, you know, that, since that change. And you have to think, okay, what will it take? It will take them being able to recruit the best talent and develop the talent better than anybody else in the Pac-12. That's true. And I guess if we're, if we're kind of playing this forward, um, do I have more trust in Oregon and Baylor to do that or Washington and Virginia Tech? I think I would ride with, with Oregon and Baylor. Well, that is not a surprise. <laughs> that is not a surprise. Well, hey, let's, let's keep talking. Any uh, duck news on your side? I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Warren. I have nothing, nothing to report on the duck side of things. Well, let's get into this NBA finals. Uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the, the Warriors are up over the Celtics now, 3-2. Uh, when we did our last show, we were talking about whether or not this Warriors team is uh, a dynasty uh, uh, without any kind of direct comparison. Now with the home court advantage going into um, game six and seven, having game seven at home, um, do you see the Warriors taking this this championship or do you think that the Celtics still have a couple of aces up their sleeves? Well, I mean, it really does feel like things have taken a shift here. Going into game four last Friday night with the Warriors trailing two games to one, 
and having come off a game three loss where they got pretty good shooting nights from Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and still, still weren't really close to winning that game. It felt like, man, Boston has seized control of this series. But if you look at what's happened, you know, kind of bookending the weekend, Friday night, Steph Curry gives him 43 points, plays arguably the best game of his career to steal game four in Boston and even up the series. And that's followed by game five, where Steph has the worst outside shooting game of his career, missed all seven three-pointers, broke all kinds of, you know, consecutive game streaks that he had of consecutive playoff games with a three-pointer, consecutive games with a three-pointer, what have you. Um, And yet still, the Warriors role players respond in such a way that uh, the Warriors pull out a relatively easy win by double digits despite not getting a, a premier game from Steph Curry. And so now I don't know how you couldn't look to game six and say all of the momentum is, is heading in the Warriors direction. And they're a battle tested, you know, heart of a champion type team that is going to go into Boston wanting desperately to close out this series. And Boston has looked a little tight in the last, last couple of games, especially in the fourth quarter and you have to wonder a young team, no finals experience. How are they, how are they going to do now on this stage? Yes, they're back on their home court, but they just, they've lost two games in a row for the first time in the playoffs. They're playing a team that has all of this championship experience. Uh, it certainly seems like things are, are tilting heavily in, in the Warriors favor. And as they do, the Celtics will, will come home uh, for game six you got to think that if the Celtics can win at home, whatever sense of momentum will, will fairly be kind of equaled out at that point. But I think to your point, the, there, there is a question of what is going on with the Celtics team and how much of this is the Celtics maybe playing tight, maybe not knowing how to win in the fourth quarter of the NBA finals. And how much is this, really the the Warriors defense who have really clamped down on this Celtics team, especially the last two games. And, you know, I want to talk about this guy. I don't want to, don't want to spend too much time before we get to him, but Andrew Wiggins and yeah. the way that he is playing defense on Jason Tatum is tremendous. And then you throw in the offensive effort that he's given this team the last two games, uh, putting up 26 points last night to really be the the MVP of game five, um, especially on, as you mentioned, Steph Curry's worst shooting night of his NBA, you know, playoff career. So, you know, is this is this a case of of more so that the Celtics playing tight or have Steve Kerr and Mike Brown and, and the coaching staff, along with the, the Warriors defense, really figured out how to stop this Celtics team. And I think they produced, what was it, 18 or 19 turnovers last night? So that's, that's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, I think the thing that has kind of gotten lost, people kind of look at this Warriors run, these six finals appearances in eight years and say the Warriors are this outside shooting juggernaut. And what that doesn't recognize, one, 
is they're much more effective scoring in the paint than people realize that, you know, they, they attack the rim and that's what creates the three point opportunities. And two, they have consistently been one of the best defenses in the league, a couple times, the best defense in the league during this, this stretch. And this year they were the second best defense in the league to the Boston Celtics. And so we're definitely seeing that on display right now where especially in the half court first of all they're shutting down any sort of transition attempts for boston which the converse is not true boston has has gotten roasted in transition by the warriors offense that's when the warriors have done most of their damage so the warriors defense has has shut down the transition game and then in the half court there have been times where they have just made the celtics look really inept and it hasn't hasn't lasted for entire games necessarily. I mean, this last game, there was a stretch where the the Celtics missed 12 threes in a row and then made eight threes in a row. Hmm. And and during that stretch, mostly in the third quarter, when the Celtics are burying every three-pointer that they're making, you know, it looks like, okay, they're kind of having their way, but the regression to the mean happens and those threes stop falling in the fourth quarter and that defense for the Warriors just tightens up. And you mentioned Andrew Wiggins. I think his his performance kind of reminds me a little bit of a couple guys mm-hmm. who won finals MVPs as role players. I'm not saying Andrew Wiggins should win the finals MVP, but Kawhi Leonard in 2014 was, was basically a role player for the Spurs, and he won the finals MVP for how he defended LeBron James in the finals. Andre Iguodala, the next year, 2015, mm-hmm same thing won the finals mvp had kind of kind of some surprising offensive output in a couple of games and then did a great job defending lebron especially later in the series for wiggins it's not just defending tatum in this round it was defending luka doncic in the last round like he's taken two of the premier offensive players and given them all kinds of problems jason tatum is shooting 37% overall mm-hmm. for the series and has 18 turnovers in five games. And a huge part of that is Andrew Wiggins. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned Andrew Wiggins in that MVP uh, conversation. And I agree. There's, there's no way he should be considered the MVP, but, you know, as I was looking through some of the numbers over these first five games, one benchmark that kind of stood out to me was this 29 point benchmark. And, what I mean by that is for all five games between both teams, there have only been four um, games in which somebody scored 29 points or more, and all four were by Steph Curry. So he's scored uh, 29, uh, 34, 43, and I think 30 um, in the, the first four games. Then he comes along and he has, as we mentioned, this terrible stinker of a game last night clearly he wasn't uh you know playing his best basketball but the 26 point output from andrew wiggins the 15 point output from uh gary payton the 14 point output from jordan Poole, that happened because the celtics committed everything to stopping Steph Curry. Yeah, you're 100% right, is that even when he's having a bad game shooting from the outside, he's creating opportunities for everybody else in the offense because of the attention that he's drawing. And the other thing is, is 
if you just isolate the nine three-point attempts that he missed, you say, that's a terrible game. But if you look at the rest of the game that he played, he actually did very well in every other part of the game. When he was attacking the rim, you know, he, he made seven field goals from inside the arc. So he was, he was a crafty scorer mm-hmm. around the basket and with the little floaters and things like that. He was, he was able to effectively find some of those shots. Uh, he dished out eight assists and only had one turnover. He made some key uh, defensive plays once when he got uh, switched on to Tatum and came up with a steal at a critical moment. So I think the mark of, you know, the all-time greats is that when they have a really rough game, especially scoring, they do other things to help their team win. The one that comes to mind was, was Kobe Bryant in, in the 2010 finals game seven had a terrible shooting performance, but grabbed 15 rebounds, you know, and, and that's kind of the thing that you're looking for from your, your star. And so Curry did that. If you watched Curry's body language, he was never kind of sagging his shoulders because he kept missing his outside shots. He Mm -hmm. was, he was attacking the rim. He's setting up his teammates. He's digging in on, on defense. And most importantly, not turning the ball over. The Warriors only had six turnovers compared to the, the number that you quoted earlier about Boston where they had 18. So I mean, that's the story of the game. If you're going to get 12 less turnovers than your opponent, you're going to win just about every time. So Steph Curry ended the year as a second team All-NBA player, first team All-NBA player for the first time in his career, Jason Tatum. Jason has had some good games in this series, but as you've mentioned, his shooting percentage is way down. He's made a number of errors. Uh, he has not eclipsed the 29-point uh, barriers. The most he's gotten is 27 in a game, which, again, is not bad. But when you are a first-team All-NBA player in the NBA Finals, you got to have at least a couple games where you you are the best player on the planet for that moment. And we haven't seen it from Jason Tatum And, you know, as I've been continuing to study and examine his game, um, especially more closely here in this playoffs, you know, what strikes me about Tatum is he does everything really, really well. I mean, you know, he's, he's got, he's got just, you know, high marks in every category of being an an NBA basketball player. But I, I don't know if I've seen that, like he's the best in the world at any one thing. Like when you talk about Steph Curry, he's got his deficiencies, but nobody shoots the ball like Steph Curry other than last night. So, you know, is this a case of a guy that just is missing that eliteness in one area to be able to lift his game to this level? I I actually, I don't think so. And here's why Warren is, his three-point shooting percentage for the series, he's shooting 47.5% from beyond the arc. To put that in perspective, Steph Curry is shooting 41.7% from beyond the arc. So Tatum has actually been significantly more efficient on his three-point shooting than the greatest shooter of all time. If you were to just isolate and look at at Tatum's three-point shooting, you would say he has been an elite-level shooter in this series here's the staggering thing he's shooting 47 percent on three pointers he's shooting 37 percent overall 
which means mm. I don't even know how mathematically that's possible. You have right. to be so bad on your two point shooting to bring down your overall percentage right. that far below. Um, and so it's been the medium range game has been a nightmare and that's where Wiggins defense has come through. You know, a lot of those, those moves that, that we saw kind of Tatum utilizing uh, against Miami or against Milwaukee or Brooklyn have, they, they have just not been there. You know, he's had some awkward air balls. He's had shots going off the side of the backboard, you know, some of the things like that. And then finishing at the rim for whatever reason, he's had a real struggle, um, whether it's mm -hmm. Kevon Looney or, or Draymond Green, who aren't necessarily big time rim protectors that, you know, neither one of those guys are Dikembe Mutombo patrolling right. the paint. Uh, yeah. But for whatever reason, they have given him all kinds of trouble trying to finish plays at the rim. But um, I think there's something else going on here, Warren. And that's, I'm looking at his free throw numbers. He's an 85% shooter during the season. He's shooting 65% in yeah. this finals. He's missed 11 free throws. Mm -hmm. Uh, to this point. And that tells me that there is, there's probably something a little psychological. He's still a young guy. He's right. what, 24 years old. He's playing in his first finals. And that's, that's just a different, a different kind of pressure. And we've seen more experienced players than Jason Tatum struggle under the lights of, of a first finals appearance. Uh, so I don't necessarily think this is like some major red flag for his long-term development as a superstar. He's still well ahead of schedule, mm. you know, compared to many of the all-time greats, but he is, he's having his struggles. And if Boston has any chance of pulling out the series, he has got to change that trajectory immediately. No, that's a good word. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about um, Clay Thompson. How would you evaluate his performance thus far in this series because he hasn't necessarily played bad, but we haven't really seen that breakout game. And I think to me, <clears throat> you know, as we enter into now the, the final two games of this, you know, NBA finals, you know, series, I think to me, the big question is, will Jason Tatum have, well, he'll probably need two big games, or will Clay Thompson have one big game? And I think the answer to that question will probably determine who the NBA champion is this year. Because I think if you you got to just believe that that Steph Curry is going to get back to scoring thirty points a game, 31, 32 points a game, the next couple games. Wiggins will probably regress a little bit. And, you know, I think a 17 point game for Wiggins is, is um, really the best that you can expect. But as far as that clay Thompson factor, we know he can put up a 35 point game on any given night. We haven't seen that yet. Do you think that's coming in the next two games? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm playing the law of averages here. I think, I think there's kind of a misnomer about Clay Thompson because he's one of the greatest shooters of all time that people think he's kind of this like ridiculous scorer who averages 25 points a game or something. No, his playoff career average is 19 points per game. Mm -hmm. uh, his average in this finals is 18 points per game. So he's basically doing what Clay normally does. 
He had a terrible game two where he went four for 19, one for eight from beyond the arc. Since then, 25 in game three, 18 in game four, 21 in game five, he hit four or five three-pointers in each of those games, which is a huge lift mm-hmm. for a guy to knock down four or five threes. We've kind of become accustomed to it with, with Stephen Clay, but that still is a major impact. But if I'm looking at the, the previous uh, series, he scored 32 in game four against Denver. And then he had uh, a game against Memphis where he had 30 in game six. That was in the closeout game. And then in the closeout game against Dallas in game five, he had 32. So in each of those games, as the series came along, there was that one game where he really let it rip, made seven threes, made eight threes, made eight threes. So I think it could absolutely be coming. I mean, I mean, just if you look at how this playoffs has gone every five or six games, Clay has one of those games and his nickname Mm -hmm. in golden state is game six clay because he kind of has this storied history of having monster performances in game six, most notably the game six against Oklahoma city in 2016, where he nailed 11 three pointers Mm. Uh, that came out earlier in, in this playoffs when he had that game six against Memphis, where he scored 30 points after the game finished, he went over to the crowd and he's holding up six fingers as if to say like, this is what I live for. This is, this is kind of my nickname. So there is a part of me that says the Warriors are absolutely going to, to take out the Celtics in six games. If game six, Clay just shows up and is in is if he buries seven or eight threes, it's over, especially because you figure Steph's going to bounce back. There's also a part of me though, that is a little worried that game six clay is going to be trying a little too hard to mm. kind of live into that at this point. Right. And so, right. so you don't, you don't necessarily want him to be overly eager in, in trying to kind of live on to that, live into that reputation. Right. Yeah. And I get that. But at the same time, I mean, I think you're on the road. You want, you want clay and you want Steph to be aggressive. And, yeah. you know, we know that those guys, they're called the splash brothers for a reason. They can catch fire at any moment. And, um, you know, there's nothing more demoralizing in this modern NBA than just seeing two guys like that just bury you with a a flurry of threes in the third quarter. Um, So I think I I, I think if if Clay goes, you know, three for 11 on three pointers in game six and they lose, I don't think that that was the wrong strategy, but. Um, but I, I, my, my feeling is clay is due and either game six or game seven, we're going to see that outburst from him. And that will be the defining difference in, you know, pushing the warriors over the top. Uh, you know, we, we've joked a little bit about Wiggins and, you know, the, the small whisper of MVP talk. I don't think he repeats his scoring output in, in any more games in this season, but um, you know, the, the Celtics will adjust to him coming out of game five, but to me, the big X factor moving forward is Clay Thompson. Well, and the other one uh, to think about here is, is Jordan Poole has, has gotten himself a little more comfortable. He seemed mm-hmm. kind of a deer in the headlights, the first few games of yeah. the finals and and still has kind of a tendency to kind of take some crazy shots yeah. or to make a few, you know, t- turnovers where he's, he's kind of out of control. 
but he's started to find his shooting stroke a little bit. And, and I mean, this is a guy who the beginning of the playoffs, there was kind of talk that he was going to supplant Clay Thompson, his first three playoff games this mm-hmm. year, first three playoff games of his career. He went for 30, 29 and 27 against Denver. And then in the next round, he had a 31 point game and a 27 point game against Memphis. He hasn't really scratched that yet in yeah. this series. His his high was 17 in game two. He had 14 last night. He's He's been kind of a defensive liability, so he's losing some minutes to Gary Payton. But he is still a, a guy that could come into the game and jumpstart the offense with, you know, eight points in two and a half minutes or something like that. And so I think if you're a Warrior fan, you're feeling like, hey, we still have guys that can kind of unlock things. Like, mm-hmm. Clay could have a big game. Jordan Poole could have a big game. Steph is likely to have a bounce-back game. Uh, you know, Draymond just played his best game mm-hmm. of the series, and so that gives you some hope Hope that he's not going to lay an egg the way he, he was earlier in the series again. So uh, I think, you know, confidence is, is pretty high right now in Warriors land. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the the Jordan Poole problem is that he has been identified as the weak link in the defensive chain for this Warriors team. I mean, anytime he was on the court last night, that was the player that they were targeting. Marcus Smart was taking advantage of him, Jalen Brown. Um, And so I think he's got to figure out how to tighten up on defense to get enough minutes to have yeah. that type of explosion. The fact that he scored 14 points in 14 minutes is pretty remarkable. Yeah. But looking at the number of minutes, Gary Payton had 26 to his 14, which I think tells you what Steve Kerr is really emphasizing against the Celtics team is I think they just believe this is a this is a defensive battle and um, you know, our guys aren't going to be able to put up points as easily against the Celtics defense. And so we've got to really shut down Smart and Brown and Tatum at the, you know, at the top. And if we can do that, we like our chances, which I think, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's what uh, the coach of the Celtics, Ime Adoka, was saying last night after the game was, you know, he was saying, we know that one way or another, the Warriors are going to get their 107 points. Yeah. But we've got to do a better job of putting up points on offense. And I think for that reason, we're going to keep seeing more of Gary Payton than we are Jordan Poole, unless either the Warriors are down and they're trying to mount a comeback or Poole figures out how to, you know, slow down a guy like Smart on defense a little bit more. Yeah, I think Poole's primary responsibility right now is to keep the offense going when Steph needs a break because he's the only guy that can kind of be the primary ball handler, can break a guy down off the dribble. You know, that's not really Clay's game. Right. And so that's that's been a nice asset for them. They haven't always had that in the yeah. in the Curry era. But your your point about Gary Payton is well taken because earlier in this series, uh, you know, they had Clay Thompson matched up with Jalen Brown and, and he kind of got roasted in game one because Clay just doesn't have the lateral quickness that he used to have. And so they moved Draymond onto Jalen Brown in game two. And that was a really effective move uh, in slowing down Jalen Brown, but it takes Draymond away from his best role where he's an off ball defender who can kind of float around, who can help out on different guys who can kind of fill gaps as needed. 
when they've got Peyton on the floor and mm-hmm. Andrew Wiggins, they can essentially put them on the two J's Tatum and, and Brown. And then they've still got Draymond to kind of play that free safety role. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty formidable. Like th- those are three really high level defenders. Yeah. And, and then you have somebody like Clay Thompson, who's, if he gets switched on to one of those guys, he can hold his own for a possession or two. Like you're just not asking him to do it, you know, every time down the floor. And so that, that lineup has definitely caused some issues for, for Boston that they're going to have to figure out. Yeah. And then to get 15 points from Gary Payton is just pure, pure gravy for the Warriors. And again, I think the fact that he got 15 points is entirely because of that defensive shift by the Celtics after getting burned for 43 by Curry. They just said, we're going to collapse on Curry at every moment once he crosses the court. And it just completely opened up the offensive game plan for Wiggins, Poole, and Gary Payton, uh, who I think is averaging like three or four points a game to, to really have their best games thus far in, in the finals. Yeah, Gary Payton by himself outscored the entire Boston bench who finished. <laughs> Boston bench finished yeah. with 10 points, and six of those were in the last minute of garbage time. Uh, right. So Peyton Pritchard, Derek White, and Grant Williams combined for four points in over 41 minutes of, of play. And you mentioned Gary Payton just by himself, uh, 15, and then Jordan Poole, 14. So both of them outscored the Boston bench by themselves. Well, assuming that we record a podcast next week, we will discuss the outcome of this series. And we'll either be discussing how Jason Tatum and the Celtics uh, mounted a comeback against one of the greatest dynasties of the 21st century, or we'll be talking about how Steph Curry belongs in a very elite club of NBA superstars of all time. But either way, uh, we want to encourage you to tune back in for the Dog and Duck Show Mark, as we wrap this up, any final thoughts about this NBA series as we look ahead to games six and seven? Well, just I, I, I'm just kind of still marveling at the fact that uh, this Warriors team is is in this position. You know, uh, two years ago they had the worst record in the league, season-ending injuries to Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. They lost Kevin Durant in, in free agency. I mean, there, there was certainly a sense at that point in time that the, the dynasty was over. And so now two years later to be in this, in this position with this trio of stars that has been together for, for over a decade, uh, to be on the cusp of, of claiming another championship is, is really a remarkable thing, especially in this day and age of, of free agency and most major stars are, are on their third team now. Uh, and this, this is kind of a throwback. They're kind of the San Antonio Spurs of this era. And uh, they've, they've put together a really great game four and game five under high pressure circumstances. And it will be, it will be fun to see if, if they can pull it off. And if, if Boston, this young upstart Boston team can summon the, the mental toughness to kind of hang in there against, against a proven champion. Absolutely. 
Well, hey, before we wrap up, there there is one other story that that I wanted to um, just mention because we didn't get a chance to do a podcast last week, and that is um, related to to Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic. Rafa's run in the French Open, winning his twenty second uh, Grand Slam, uh, now two ahead of Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. And as uh, as Rafa's, you know, re kind of reclaiming that status of being the greatest of all time, clearly he's the greatest of all time on clay. He's won yeah. 14 French Open titles, 22. Um, he's He's creeping up now on Serena Williams and her women's uh, uh, Grand Slam title. And he's also halfway to the, the, the Grand Slam in a calendar year, having now won the Australian and the French. So Mark, I, I know, I think a, a few years ago, you wrote a great, uh, you know, great story in Mark's moment about, um, you know, Rafa and Nadal, and and excuse me, Rafa and and Novak and and Roger, any thoughts about this? You know, new direction that we're seeing with the you know the legacy of of professional men's tennis. Yeah, I mean, you are much more equipped to comment on on this than I am, as as uh, someone who's played and and coached and taught the game and everything like that. But I I think I just marvel at how. I mean, all three of those guys at various times have just kind of pushed pushed the envelope of what is possible. And that's been so, so fun to watch. And I, I think I'm kind of at the point with each of them where to me, it's not about trying to like revise the pecking order and, oh, is, is, is this person back number one now? Or like, I mean, I think the three of them will always kind of belong together in my mind. Certainly Nadal's signature is his success in the French Open on clay, and so that's uh, that's that's kind of part of his his legacy in a in a particular way. But uh, I'm re- I really just kind of marvel at how, in Rafa's case, he just keeps going. He, he just keeps winning, and yeah. uh, and we don't really know how long it's going to continue. And so you know, similar to the to kind of watching guys like. Tom Brady or, or LeBron James or Serena Williams, I think it, you know, it's appropriate to just kind of marvel and just savor it for what it is, you know, these extended runs of, of dominance. No, I agree. It seems inevitable that at his age, Novak Djokovic is going to eventually supersede, um, you know, both those guys, but what a fun turn of events, because I think for us, Maybe it was a year ago we were talking about this, and it seemed an inevitability that within the next few months, Djokovic would would take the lead on Roger and Rafa, and, and that eventually he'd leave them far in the, in the dust. But Rafa has really had a tremendous surge in this year, and I think you know that you you mentioned the the way that athletes are extending their careers today in ways that it was never possible. 
And I think yeah. Rafa is the perfect example of that. I mean, the kind of medical treatment that he's getting to be able to play tennis on that bad heel of his is just beyond the realm of you know, anybody's imagination, even 20 years ago. I mean, I remember, you know, John McEnroe never won another Grand Slam after the age of 27. So to think about what these guys are doing into their 30s and, you know, for Roger into his late 30s, it's it's pretty amazing. And, um, and, and it makes it almost impossible to compare the, the greatness of their eras because guys... 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, just could not have been able to do what these guys are doing. 100%. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. We'll uh, we'll keep track on that as uh, Wimbledon approaches. And um, certainly Djokovic is coming in as a, if not a favorite, then certainly expected to be able to, to, to make his mark at Wimbledon. But we know that, that Nadal can um, can can win on grass. It's not his preferred surface, but certainly something to keep keep track of. Especially since he knows that time is short and that history is still in front of him. So that'll be a fun thing to keep an eye on. But with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Dog and Duck Show. We look forward to seeing you next week. But for that, but with that, I'll say, go dogs. And I'll say, go back. Until next time.